Guys, welcome back to the podcast. If we were live, I'd be asking you to give a warm welcome to Dr. Scott Stevenson. How are you keeping me? I'm good. I'm good. It's another hot, muggy day in Florida. Yeah, surprisingly warm here in the UK, but I'm sure it's no comparison to Florida. I know it's been warm in Europe. My friends in Germany have been complaining about it. So is it a little bit of outside the norm warm? Like it's, yeah, like record-breaking? <laughs> A few weeks ago were bad. I think it's starting to kind of simmer down a bit now. Um, but that should flip very quickly and it'll be cold and windy. And minutes. you don't have air conditioners a lot of places there. No. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you have to buy fans, Dyson fans and everything. Um, yeah. Right. So today, that is, though. today we're going to go through bridging the gap between science and application. Um, basically just discussing like... The things that get lost in translation when a lot of delving into research and um, but then relating it back to obviously that practical application um so no better person to discuss this so scott first of all give us an introduction for yourself for people who don't know you i'll, I'll give you the short one um i'm just a meathead who likes to learn and has an insatiable curiosity and that's just i'm just sort of followed the path of doing what I love. I was a, so physics and German major as an undergraduate. And actually the German has come back now. It's been 30 years and now I'm doing podcasts in Germany. I'm working on my German language skills, but it, after I left college, I'm like, what am I going to do? And I knew that I loved exercise. Mm-hmm. There were some other less savory possibilities that probably wouldn't have made my parents happy, but I decided to do something a little more formal. <laughs> and I went to study. I want to be the world's best personal trainer it was kind of like my, like my goal jokingly. And mm-hmm. since then, I managed to be, um, I was college press for a couple of while, a couple of years. I got a PhD along the way. I've owned a gym when I was in Arizona, um, actually became a licensed acupuncturist when I was there too. So I've got a, um, a medical license here that I maintain in the States. And um, along the way, I started personal training in 93, was kind of coaching, like back in the early days of the internet, people just sent you questions. And, like, you just have these exchanges that went on. I literally coached people without getting paid for it for probably a few years. And then finally it's like, okay, should probably get paid for this. <laughs> so I kind of shifted towards that. I've written a couple of books. People might know the fortitude training. I got the shirt on here. That's my training system, um, which is just one particular recipe from the important ingredients. I think go to, to um, producing muscle growth, at least for certain percentage of the population. Mm-hmm. And then um, my be your own bodybuilding coach book, which is mm-hmm. kind of my brain dump book. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. On their own. Yeah. So, and I do lots of podcasts. I'm a podcast whore pretty much because it's, it's sort of like the classroom in a way. Yeah. Um, so if I get a little amped up, it's because I get finally get a chance to teach, um, <laughs> so to speak, which I really enjoy the internet. Um, I'll, I'll spare you some of my detailed thoughts on that, but the internet is where so many people are, are getting their misinformation or their information. And my experience, even in academia, is a lot of students are just there for the degree and they're not really there for the learning. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've taken, and this is any fault on you guys, but we've, the America, in, the, in America, we've taken a, a originally British system where the, it's the point of learning why you go to the university. So you go and you, know, you have someone who's going to do four years and they take all these general education classes and they don't care about philosophy. They don't want to learn a foreign language. They don't want to have an English class. They don't have a poetry class. That's what someone who's there simply for the sake of learning might do, which is what like the rich might have, who the, who the privileged who go to the university would do. We, we still hold on to that system. So our university, the educational system fails many people who really just want to have 
some skills that they can take in the work, workforce. So our education fails, and that's a whole other diatribe, but it fails in many ways. And now we've got social media. Everyone is, is symbiosing with their phones and with their social media and their computers. So I'm here to try to like, you know, clear some of the smoke, so to speak, as much as I possibly can. Not that I'm the end all be all, but I hopefully make sense to some people. So I try to try to at least lend them some ideas that, that might help them think through things a little more wisely whenever possible. You, you definitely do clear a lot of the smoke that's out there. Uh, we will actually do want to go through some of the um, the topics in fortitude training and be your own bodybuilding coach, or even just the thought process behind them. Um, but first of all, did you have any, who are your main peers for you? Like what kind of led you down bodybuilding? Was it sports beforehand? You know, I, the, I remember, it's so funny. I wish I could go back and like, talk to the little young Scott. Cause I remember wanting to lift before I could do anything. I remember it was like, I was born like, I, you know, it's like the Dalai Lama. Like he knows he's the Dalai Lama. He remembers the, the articles of clothing or whatever. Like that's how they recognize him. It's like, I knew from a past life that I wanted to lift and right. I couldn't until I was 11. There was no, my mom would let me do it. She thought it would stunt my growth. Um, but I did, you know, I did play sports. I started lifting as soon as I could in junior high. And um, you know, I was on the swim team. Actually, I played football. I wrestled for a couple of years. So, but it was always the training that I loved. There was, I mean, I've told this story before in a podcast. There was one year, I think it was before my junior year, we brought a strength coach in for football. And this guy just thought, well, I'm just, just going to throw everything at these guys. And he created a program uh, three times a week. You train the full body. It was 98 sets total. It took four hours to get through. And you did like, you basically did a set of eight, almost a failure. And then you waited like rest of the minute and then you can get maybe six to eight. And then you get like four on the next set, something like that. So it was almost sort of like a rest pause yeah. series of sets. It took four. I did, was the only pe- person on the team who did the whole thing. I have to come in and be right. The, the room wait was open from eight until eight till noon, eight o'clock AM. So it took a full four hours to do that. And then you had went and ran, you did drills and form running and sprints. And then there was an endurance run. And then if you're, if you're ambitious, there was an, an extra mile you could do. So I did, I did everything. I did two positions of running. It was like six hours of training <laughs> straight. I did that three times a week. And then I was on the swim team in the afternoon. So some of those days I'd work out from eight until two. And then I have enough time for one meal. And then I go to swim, swim, swim training at four o'clock that day. It was ridiculous, but I just love the training. I love doing it. So it probably got wired a little bit, you know, for, for liking to train and doing that. But I just, I just like that, like that aspect of it. I never liked so much. The competitions were okay. We were horrible at football. We were horrible at swimming. Um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the greatest bodybuilder. Like I got a lot of second and third places, that sort of thing coming up. You know, I never got a pro card. I won a few shows along the way too, but it was just the endeavor for me that was the, was the, um, the fruit of the labor, so to speak. So yeah, nothing sports wise. I just like, I just wanted the train. I like the training and, and resistance training is it's so refined. It's like abs- it's maximal effort really yeah. almost from the get go when you get into it. So, so that always appealed to me. You mentioned refined there. And I think what's kind of, what's shown here is like over the years of your first exposure, it was throw everything out a wall and see what sticks. And now it's like, like yeah. that kind of guides your thought process of let's let's make this a little bit more time efficient. Let's refine this to be a little bit more efficacious. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that, that I mean, that strength, that was just one example. It wasn't always like that. But this guy was brought in as the expert and he's like, we're going to, it was a bodybuilding program, but three times a week, he was like, it's like, let's go do high volume. I mean, I don't know. That's probably, obviously the weights weren't anywhere like that, but he, he literally, what he had us do was use every machine and every exercise you could do on those machines in the entire gym that they had. It's like, just do everything. It's like, and some, but some people do that. Like that's, it's like you have a you have a seated hamstring curl machine, you have a lying hamstring curl machine, you've got you've got a unilateral hamstring curl machine, you've got a barbell, so you can do some stiff-legged deadlifts, mm-hmm. and then you've got like a reverse hyper or something like that. Well, you might as well just do them all, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. If if we're that way, like you know, I'd be 500 pounds, I'd be just the world's <laughs> biggest person, you know, because I would just do more and more. So wish it were. Yeah, there is a there's an upper limit anyway. Um, but when it comes to your own bodybuilding endeavors, you had you made a few very strong acquaintances along the way. Um, yeah, you were you training partner with David Henry for years. Yeah, 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 we met in the gym actually. Yeah. So yeah, Dave wanted to work in, or vice versa. Um, so we just started training, and I had seen. He had just won his pro card and I, and I, and I recognized his name because he had won at the nationals. He's a middleweight. Mm-hmm. And I just re- recognized the name. I didn't necessarily recognize him. I didn't put it all together. And of course we just started training and I sort of, um, I was leaning. I've been reading about dog crap training. This is before I knew Dante Trudell either. I, 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 the crazy thing is I've detailed this in my fortitude training book is when I was in California, before I moved to Arizona, when I met Dave, I was really starting to refine the things that seemed to work for me. And I literally had come to essentially everything that, that Dante was, was finding works really well. Generally is working for me, except for the cluster sets, except for the rest pause sets. I hadn't been doing those. And I'm like, and this, and the stretches, I wasn't doing the extreme stretching, hmm. but the, that pattern of training with that frequency and progressive overload, like the whole nature, the, the basic um, pieces of the recipe Minus that the icing on the cake, the stretching, and the, the, he liked to use the, the cluster sets. That's what I was doing. I'm like, this is going to work for me really well. And this is going to be a lot of fun. So I was kind of doing that and moving that direction. And then I started training with Dave. We, Dave was the pro. So I'm like, who am I to say what we should be doing? And Dave was doing high volume because Dave's genetics supersede mine tenfold. Mm-hmm. So I tried to hang with Dave. Um, for, for a good period of time. We, and he was stronger than I was. I eventually kind of caught up to him where he was always stronger than me on press de- pressing exercises, but legs, I could take him a little bit and back, we were really close. So we had some, it was a perfect training partner. Yeah. Someone who sort of, you know, pushes you enough. Like I need chest was a weak muscle group. So I need to get better on those exercises. But when we first started out, Dave would do a set of 12, 15 reps. And let's say he did, did 15 reps, 12 reps, and he's got four or five in the tank, maybe, or maybe three in the tank, you know, because he's saving himself so he can adjust to that, adapt to that amount of volume, because we're doing a high volume training report, which would work for him, at least good enough to get him to a pro card. And he put some good size on afterwards with that app as well. Well, for me, that set of 12 meant that I was doing basically a widow maker, because I get like seven or eight reps. And I'd be damned if he's going to beat me by five reps. I'm going to get at least a 12 and try to get 13. So Dave would do a 40-second set, and my set would take a minute and 40 seconds because <laughs> I'm just trying to crank out the reps. I put myself into a word, world of hurt. You think I would have learned from that, but that's how we started. And at some point, um, I don't remember exactly how this evolved, but I said, hey, do you want to try out this dog crap training thing? Because like, I think he wanted to try something new. 
And I'd been playing with that. I knew it worked for me. So it was going to save my ass too, to, mm. to get out of that situation. With him. <laughs> yeah. So we started doing that. And um, I suggested, I said, Dave, like go to the man. Cause I was just learning as best I could from what was written second and third hand on the net. And I'm like, you, you want to go to Dante. So um, I was coming to know Dante too. I think, I think he was, I can't, it all kind of, this is a long time ago, but all kind of intermingles together, but eventually Dave hired Dante and I got to see, I just was CC'd on the email. So we did, we did DC training. I, I got to train with Dave as Dave was trained by coached by Dante. Basically the, the program was tailored to, to Dave, not to me. Um, but I got to see how he did things and what he did there. So eventually that became um, when some things fell out, Dante took me on. He said, Hey, I need someone to be the DC trainer officially could you do that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I stepped yeah. in for a few years with that. So that's probably one of like your first exposures when you, when you really realize that like, right, there's a gap here in genetics that we can't, oh. really, we can't work. We can't at work. We can't catch up on. I'll tell you, you know, my favorite story with Dave, I'll, I don't know if you've heard me talk about this. It was when we were, it was, it was after he had just won the Mr. Olympia, the 202 Mr. Olympia. Mm-hmm. So it was the follow the following year. And we would train and I was dieting for the summer, the state show in Arizona. And Dave is the reigning 202 Mr. Olympia. So we, and this was totally just Dave making a commentary, but it was just so hilarious and so apropos. So we would get done training. We're dieted down. We go into this yoga room and we'd pose. That's where the best mirrors were. And we'd posing there for years. Mm-hmm. We get done and I ran him through the ringer and he ran me, me through the ringer. And we're just kind of standing there and we're kind of like in a haze. Like, okay, we're done. We got to get our shit together and leave the gym now. We're just kind of standing there. And Dave just kind of like looks over at our reflections in the mirror. And he's like, he's like, man, it's crazy. We've like been training together and doing the same shit for so long, but our physiques, our bodies just look so different. And I'm like, no fucking shit, Dave. You're the reigning 202 Mr. Olympia. And I'm just trying to win my state show. Yeah. There's a big difference between us. So yeah, it was, it was absolutely apparent, you know? And even when I first met Dave, like, because he could do these things. He did one show and they, I can't remember what it was. I think they maybe said he needs to bring his hamstrings up and he had like four or six weeks between shows and he's dieted down. It's not like he's got an off season to do this. He's just planning on doing it between the shows. And he did because he, <laughs> he still had so much room to grow and improve. And that's the kind of genetics he had. He just had to say, okay, I want to bring this up. And it just happened. And that wasn't with forced eating or like sight injections or insulin or anything like that. It's just like, I'll just do some more, more hamstring curls and boom, he gets gross. So his genetics were like wizardry basically. So yeah, it was very clear, very clear from that. It is an unfair advantage when people have just genetics. They're just like phenomenal. You know, you just look at something yeah. like you could just look at a weight and you can gain tissue. Yeah. I mean, and it is, it is funny because if you talk about going to sports ethics, what's fair, you know, that's why we have divisions and levels, you know, so you don't have like a pro whatever playing with amateurs. You don't bring an NFL guy doesn't come in, you know, and and quarterback and he doesn't step in, you know, at the high school level and start playing or the college level. um, If he's a a Super Bowl quarterback, Super Bowl winning quarterback. So you want to, you want to sort of play at on an equal playing field. And I just gave a talk last week about the title of the talk in English is why you don't look like a pro. It's all about this genetic variability that we have. Mm. And we just don't want to admit that it, yeah, it's an unfair, unfair playing field. It'd be like, I mean, it's like, like basketball. It's like, Hey, you're, you're five, eight. You're not going to be able to stand up against these guys who are six, six and taller. And it's obvious in that case, because you see it. 
but with mm. the genetics, it is it, in a way you're right. It's like, it's funny. You said it though. It's unfair. Mm-hmm. And if you just recognize, which I did, which is why it was such a gift to train with Dave, it's not fair. Like it's not fair that, but, but then, but then I'm like, now I know what I'm up against. So I'm not like going home and like rocking myself to sleep because I'm so distraught that I can't make progress. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, he just has better genetics. You know, he's, he's six foot eight. I'm five foot eight. It's not going to matter. I'm not going to be able to dunk on him ever. It's never going to happen. <laughs> You know, and I'm not going to be running in the Olympics with Usain Bolt, no matter how many sprints I do. And I may outtrain Usain every fucking day for the next decade. I'm never going to be faster than him. Even if he spends a, a year in bed, he's still going to get up and be faster at me, faster than I am. Yeah. So, so when you kind of, when you're in that experience, and obviously that, that forms you a lot, but the fact that you kind of take this and it's not, as I said, it's you're not letting it be a disheartening factor. It's like, right, this is just, this is it. So now I get to look at what I can do. And now I get to look at like the finer details. And this is where, this is where I want to bring in like this, the topic of this podcast of right. Bridging that gap. This brings you down the scientific route or you're already pursuing it. Um, And then you have to kind of relay that back to what you're doing in the gym. Right. So what are the, um, when this sends you down that route, um, what are the main things that you're you're really looking for? Like when you're looking research, you're trying to say, right, how do I how do I make this gap between me and Dave? How do I close that gap? <laughs> right. Yeah. How do we make use of the of the science? You know, in what yeah. way, shape, or form? And I think the first thing that that is maybe you can start with a thing, sort of a mistake, is that um, many people will criticize science and say, hey, like there's not a black and white answer there. Um, I can't take that on necessarily in any way. There's nothing I can do with that. So like one example that comes to mind that, that Brad Schoenfeld got a lot of um, slack for was this high, the high volume study that came out a couple of years ago. And it was tons and tons of sets, um, but it was a proof of concept um, as far as what you call ecological validity. Like, can I take that and apply it to me directly? I don't know. I, I could never survive that number of sets that they did in that study, but, but those subjects did that. And they did show a dose response with volume. So we can figure that out. And the, the idea you can, I, that I can take from that is, hey, like if I do just one set, probably not enough. If I try to do 20 sets, probably too much. There's yeah. going to be some in between there. So one thing that like it took me decades to learn is that I have probably trained too much and, and given myself not enough recovery for years. Um, probably like the whole way through, you can, you can suffer through and maintain performance, not make progress. I think for a lot of people sort of over a very wide range or a very large span of volume or volume load beyond what would be optimal. Um, So you increase the load, increase the number of work sets you're doing, what have you, and you may get some optimal given how you recover. And then you may be able to, some people even double that and you can still come back through sheer, sheer force of will and battle your way through more workouts, but you're not going to, not going to progress. And you think, well, it's just a slow road. Well, it might be a faster road if you just let yourself progress. So that that's one thing. The other thing that is a big one with science. Um, and I talk about some of my favorite study, my kind of my, there's a pair of studies are sort of my favorite. I'll give you the brief, brief version. This particular study, they, they were comparing five, three and two times a week training. So a higher volume, 15 sets versus nine versus six sets. Every subject trained one leg high, one knee extensions, so one quad high volume, 
And the other quad was two or three times. And they, on average, there's no difference. Didn't make a difference. So you're thinking, okay, well, that's a huge range. That doesn't seem to make sense. You know, that's a big difference. Six is the same as 15. Like, okay, so why would I do anything other than six if it's just the same? Well, when they looked at the individuals, for some people, six was much better. For some people, 15 was much better. Six or nine, they, they compressed those two. But you saw that the higher volume was better for some, the lower balls, and for some, it didn't matter. And for some, they made great growth, and for some, they made not so great growth. So the thing that is tough to glean from science, and it's important to remember, is that science is looking at trying to answer the question in a sort of a generalized way. We go and we sample a population of, of men between 18 and 40 years old who are recreationally trained. We expose them to this training regime or we give them this training regime. We add a supplement in there or a placebo. What happens, right? And here we have some reason for thinking there might be a difference there. And on average, can we say the answer says, the stats say, yeah, there's no difference. Let's make a difference. So in a general way, if we, we have no certainty from the results of that study that we could go into that population and say, yep, we think it's going to matter if you do this, that, or the other, take this supplement or train this way on average. Hmm. But for some of those individuals, it may have made a huge difference. And that's what you don't, you're not getting that. The question doesn't, isn't asked about the individual. It's asked about generalizability to some degree. And that's not like, I've seen people do this. You may have seen trainers. There was a guy in California who used to do this and he would, he would train like four or five people at once. It's kind of a pain in the butt in the gym. Cause you always knew he was there. Like he would go and he like the whole dumbbell rack. And then like, he'd bring some fixed barbells over and they would all do like a circuit, which was great. You know, that's what they wanted, but that was in no way specific to how those people would be training. So you've got a limitation in a lot of studies because it's, they're asking in general, the question that's answering being answered in general do we see an effect here? And if it's a strong enough of one effect, then, okay, good. That's something we can take from that study. Then we look at the other studies. There's variability amongst the studies as well. Yeah. One thing from this presentation is I, you know, look at the variability. There's some studies that show, there's studies that show no change in muscle growth. They're looking at the impact of something on muscle growth and they got no muscle growth from their program. And there are other studies that have a, a hypertrophy or a muscle growth program and they had tremendous muscle growth. So what varies that you don't see is not reported directly, at least, is what happened to the individuals, whether there's some responders, some non-responders. You can see that if you look at the average and the standard deviations, but you have to be a little bit statistically aware to know what those would even mean. You see, a, like the average is 10 plus or minus 10. That's huge. Like, so some people might, might've got 20, some people got to got nothing. And you see those kinds of variabilities in responses, there's some, some studies of protein synthesis, for instance, where you see that, that there's some people in the, where you expect the peak increase in protein synthesis after a training session, there's nothing there, nothing happened. So for the coach, for the individual, you're looking to some degree, not to cherry pick studies or to cherry pick individuals out of studies, but just to recognize that you might be a cherry, pardon my pun. You might be a snowflake or you might be someone who doesn't respond to those things. So if you have, for instance, let's supplement X and there's 10 studies and none of them show an effect, I'm not gonna expect much from that. Mm -hmm. But if you have a, a, a set of ser a series of studies where some of them show an effect or there's really good biological plausibility that there could be an effect, then you can say, okay, what would make the difference? Like with creatine back in the day, 
what would make the difference as to whether creatine works? And they very astutely figured out that vegetarians respond to creatine supplementation really, really well. Mm-hmm. Vegans, they're not eating any meat. They don't have any creatine coming in. So they've got just endogenous synthesis. You supplement, it's basically given the creatine that was completely lacking from their diet. And they get, there was a, like a case study of a, of a person who they, they dropped like 1.7 seconds off of a hundred meter dash just through, there's a vegetarian, a sprinter, something crazy, like from 13 to like 11 point something seconds. Like that's a huge improvement on that kind of a, of a, a measure, a performance measure. Probably got so, pulled in for testing after that. What's that? She probably got pulled in for testing after that. Yeah, it, it would appear that way, right? So some yeah. people respond tremendously to some things and others don't. So that's the thing that you can, you have to sort of take the, the science with a, with a grain of salt, so to speak. Um, and, and reading the discussion, this is the thing I encourage people to do is like, if you see a study, it's like, oh, that didn't work out the way, but, but this guy and that guy, everyone in the gym tells me this. And I keep on hearing this, that, and the other. And you always got to think about what are their, what are their um, motives or whether it's motivation for telling, are they trying to sell you something that happens a lot? <laughs> Yeah. But if people keep on telling you that it works and it sort of makes sense that it works and look at the paper, don't just say, oh, shit, it didn't work. Read the discussion. Mm-hmm. It's a good discussion. These are the experts. They're like, you know what? Here's one of the issues. This is why we might not have seen a, a problem. You know, we did a post hoc dietary recall and all of our all of our bodybuilders were eating on average, you know, three times the amount of meat than an average person would. So they probably didn't get an effect from creatine because they're already creatine loaded or what have you. Or maybe they cite other research that substantiates that idea. So they're going to tell you what, what may have been wrong and explain why there was a null report or null finding. Um, so you can dig average if it's your, if your, if it's in your native tongue, if it's in English, you're an English speaker or what have you, you can read those things and figure out what they think and learn a shitload. So those are a couple of things you can kind of do with the research just to like, try to contextualize it, you know, and put it in a framework. Brad Schoenfeld, I bring Brad up. I always want to give Brad kudos because he's been on stage before a long while ago. He was a trainer for years and he got tired of like not knowing the answers to some of these things scientifically. And that's when he launched his scientific career. And now he's answering like, or at least he's giving answers to this fastest cardio idea, you know, and all the things that we've asked, he's, he's coming, he's looking into the research on, he's doing a phenomenal job of, being like our bro he gets a lot of shit for being like this you know white tower um scientist in his in his uh, lab coat but he's the bro who's decided to go into the science and try to get really good scientific answers to this stuff so you know wasn't intended to do this but kudos to brad because he should be applauded because he's kind of one of he's a bro he's a dude you know like like the guys who maybe even scoff at science brad wanted to see what can we get from that information how can we glean more from the science to try to figure out like who's a responder, who's not a responder. So mm. you can do that too. Average person get in there and you can read a lot of things. If you speak the language, you can glean a lot of information from that. I think a lot of the areas that people struggle with this on is like the ability to self-assess. Like we talk about patients or lack thereof for yeah. people training. It's like they want everything yesterday and actually wanting to go in and like, right, let me try this. Let me see if this works for me. Because at the end of the day, like, I am N equals one. Like, I am a single person in this sample size. Um, and yes, this study might not say that it works on average, but there could be outliers in there. Am I one of those outliers? Um, right. And yeah, I just think it's, people just don't have the patience for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the thing, two things pop into my head. Um, 
one is the way to figure out if something's working. You want to hold everything else constant. This is what studies do. And then just change one variable at a time. And that takes patience, you know, like, I don't know how many people I've consulted with, you know, I, I kind of do just consultations now rather than weekly coaching types of things. Cause a lot of times that's it's sort of a waste of money for the client. They already know what we're going to do for the most part. I'm sort of handholding them and keeping them from taking that leap to being um, autonomous in terms of making their own changes and coaching themselves. But so many guys, they're like, it's like, okay, I need to make a comeback. I want to do this, that, and the other. And they just want to like blast everything at once because they want to be, like you said, they want to be where they want to be yesterday. Mm-hmm. And like when it comes to um, PEDs, I see this the most. They're like, they like want to go right away on a big cycle. And sure, you'll make monstrous gains. But if, if the point is you want to come back and be better than you once were, it's like you're playing all your trump cards right off the bat. This, mm-hmm. this thought of get the, get the most from the least mm-hmm. very much plays a role. And you squander thing, you, you squander the potential that you can get out of something like PED use. I can talk about this more freely with you guys because it's, it's legal there. As long as you're not, you know, you can use the use is legal. It's kind of weird, but it's a little bit different in the States. Um, and you squandering that when you just, you know, go beyond, you know, use a dosage that, that would, that is way beyond what you need to maximally stimulate protein synthesis and actually drive your progress. In fact, you may not need anything if you're just coming back from a long layoff. So that's one part. And the other thing that um, is worth just sort of at least being aware of, and it's kind of a tricky one because you, you want to be able to use this to your advantage if you can, but if you come aware of it, then you lose its utility and that's the placebo yeah. effect. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> you know, you, you can, that's a, a, one thing I outlined a long time ago. I think the, um, there was a, an article I wrote for muscle mag anatomy of a supplement or something like that. I may have rewritten some of those pieces. I think it may even be in my book, some of those ideas, but one thing you can do is if you want to find out something really works, fat burner or creatine or whatever, where it is, is even something that's injectable. Um, if you really want to know, then you have, take a buddy and say, Hey, um, I want you to like get, get a placebo and get the real deal. And we're going to like do two weeks and two weeks and see if I can tell the difference. You know, see if I noticed anything and the placebo effect could be massive. Mm-hmm. You, I've heard, I've, I've told this to people on podcasts and even other places. Like one of the craziest ones I remember was a friend of mine who um, we spent, we, this was back in when I was in high school. We spent the whole day making this pure grain alcohol punch, but he had to go get all these fruits and get a special container container for it. And, you know, it's this really delicious punch. And pure green alcohol you can't really taste we kept on talking about that and we had it all put together and another friend came in he's like did you guys mix it already he's like no we haven't mixed it hold on he took some of the some of the punch without the alcohol in it and set it off to the side and the person whose house we were at who had made the punch she was off the side running around she's like okay it's all made you want some she's like oh yeah sure gave her a big glass of the stuff and she drank about half of it 10 minutes later oh wow i'm blasted (laughs) no alcohol (laughs) <laughs> no out none and she I, I, she was a little bit of um she could be overly dramatic and that actually fits with sort of the stereotypical neurological profile of someone who's there if you're really excited about something if you're really enthusiastic high dopamine levels mm-hmm. you're going to be someone who's like yeah this is working this is going baby so that's one thing i've hardly ever heard about anyone doing you make a placebo and have a buddy test you out you know and see what happens 
Mm. And ideally someone you don't train with, because this is why, this is why we do this in research as you can have experimenter effects, Rosenthal effects, Hawthorne effects, where if you don't have a double blind and placebo, because if your trained partner knows what you're getting, you know, he's going to send subliminal signals to you. He doesn't necessarily say anything, um, but he's going to know like, okay, like, yeah, now you're using the injectable D ball or whatever it is, you know, I mean, he's expecting you to grow and get stronger, et cetera, et cetera. And he'll convey that to you psychologically. So he'll, he'll create sort of a version of a placebo effect. So that's a hard, a very, very difficult thing to do, but it's worth noting that, that simply, and here's where you, what you can take for this is that your belief and I can talk about my favorite placebo study. You probably heard me mention before. There's a couple of these like this, but your belief that something's going to work in many cases can be the most important factor for whether it does. Mm-hmm. If you think it's not going to work, if you're a naysayer, you may know some people. I had an uncle like this, like he could find it, put a negative spin on anything. He, he was a genius at looking at things through the wrong lens. But if you think, man, it's go time, baby, I'm going to make progress. This is going to happen come hell or high water. And I can't wait to get where I'm going. Mm. That like, if you think, oh, oh gosh, I just got the stuff. I got the stuff from the same guy who gives the stuff to that guy in the gym. Who's on the Mr. Olympia stage. I got mm. the real stuff. Like, right. If you if you believe in that sort of fairy tale, let's say, but it, you, it's your truth. You're it's going to manifest in a large part mm-hmm. um, just because of that belief. Yeah. And so there's so much okay. to say for that. The word manifestation is a very uh, <laughs> iffy word to use. <laughs> I just yeah. think this generation, especially, um, it can be very taken out of context. Um, yeah. Right. What I forgot what I was going to say now. Alex, say oh. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, Jesus, I'm just enjoying listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but that, so that aspect of supplementation is, is a huge one. And, mm-hmm. you know, and you're going to get one thing that's important to know is that, is that, the advertisers are, are, they're parlaying that in part. And one of the things like why I wrote this or put this, this, um, this uh, presentation together about why you don't look at the pro is because we still, to this day, what you see advertised for, for the most part is with the best. It makes sense. You use the best looking athletes to advertise your stuff. You don't want to look like, you know, have some guy advertising your supplement. It's like, does the guy even lift? No, you want to have, but most people, if they could think logically, it's like, you know, that person, they probably have really good genetics. I don't know. I have no, I don't have any evidence to what extent how they look is because of the supplement they're advertising. Um, Lee Priest, love the guy. He's honest. He's straightforward, but he's renowned as someone. Lee Priest, I wonder if he'd ever counted it up. He's probably had 50 supplement sponsors over the years. He would just go from one to the other because he's very marketable. Mm. Phenomenal physique, great personality. But, you know, what is, what does that say about the extent to which he was made by those supplements? It doesn't really work well um, to take, take before and after pictures and just parlay that. I took an average person and made them look a little bit above average. That doesn't get anyone's juices flowing, right? Like it's okay. Like it looks great. No, I want to look absolutely phenomenal. And that, that triggers us and that gets us to buy those things. And that's just a subliminal unconscious effect that, constantly runs through our heads and it i mean if some if some aliens came down some highly intelligent aliens came down it's like what do all these people think they've got this dunning kruger effect type of phenomenon where where they think they can just be extraordinary like everyone everyone 
80% of the people think that they can be in the top 10%. It's like the mathematically it doesn't work, but we have that sort of a phenomenon with bodybuilding. And that is why those advertisements can work in that way. It's just how it is. And I'm not picking on any company in particular, because it's just, it's become now part of the phenomenon too. Like if someone's got Phil Heath and you've got Joe Blow, you know, who trains in his basement um, and, you know, and he's like, he's struggling to win his state title. It's like, eh, you got to cultivate that in a certain way. Like if you make Joe Blow into like a, the underdog hero, which I would love to see, I would love to see someone like underdog supplements, maybe I'm giving someone an idea and you take a bunch of average people who are grinding it out. They work through a hard day. They get, they're tired as shit, but they go to the gym anyway and they push themselves to the brink and they come home and they're just trying to like place top five in their regional show or what have you. God, that would be a great advertising thing, but I haven't seen too many of those that have, I can't think of a company um, animal kind of had a little bit of that feel, but all their athletes were extraordinary. They had like this sort of underground, but they had, you know, Evan sent and Roman Fritz was there. And, but I don't see anyone taking that approach that would resonate with me, but that's not how it works. You've got, you've got, everyone's going to say, well, look, so-and-so has Mr. Olympia or these top 10 placing individuals. So we have to try in order to compare, we have to have someone at least looks somewhat, like they're in that category. Yeah. So that's the phenomenon. Being aware of that, I think is important. I think that's maybe a very uh, dumbed down version of like Herbalife. Like we're going to make you a little bit better. <laughs> we're going to take you okay. average a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Is that how I, I, I've known Herbalife's been around for forever. So they're a good success story. That may be what I haven't noticed. Is that it's, just, doing that. it's the only analogy that I could think of, of like somewhere that they advertise like average physiques and it's not like bodybuilders. Okay. Um, but I remembered what I was going to say earlier. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so we were talking about a like placebo effect. Like yeah. That's a really common thing in obviously psychology, clinical psychology, sports psychology, and it has that utility. And I think another word, place where that could be um, beneficial when you're talking about like, right, getting amped up, this is going to work. Everything's going to work for me is like, even just your, your preset mentality, like your psychological approach going into the gym. Like I know a lot of people, and I've actually discussed this with like a, a sports psychologist previously it's like that has so much utility and potentially oh, yeah. that's another thing that's undervalued but it might be something that like us three and many other listeners would be would kind of take for granted but i think for the lay person for general population like actually just owning that preset mentality having that kind of positive re- reinforcement um, and the manifestation in that sense yeah i mean knowing, knowing what you're there for i've Mm-hmm. I've got some, a couple articles I've written. Um, this may be in my book too, about visualization. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of big paradigms about literally you can do this before you come go in. So basically you've experienced what you, what you want to experience in your mind's eye before you've come in for the workout. Yeah. So it's already happened and now you're just doing it again. So you have the confidence of seeing what you're doing, what you've actually already seen yourself do. Just doing that plays a huge role. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing, um, like, for instance, with logbooks, people are using logbooks. This is, Dave and I used to do this. It was a sort of our ritual. Before we do anything, we'd sit down. On, and I'm seeing us on this one bench that we used to sit on a lot of times to do this at the gym we trained at for a lot of the times we were training. And we'd look at previous workouts and, and write in the exercises for that day on the, on the card or in the logbook. And then, like, set some numbers in mind. You know, these, this, is the, this is the load I'm going to use. So last time I used, you know, 225 pounds or hundred kilos. And so now I'm going to go to, go to 105 kilos 
I'm going to go to 235 or whatever. And you see that. And then you imagine that. And like in doing that, you've that's even without having to do anything other than just write all that over, <clears throat> you've already gone through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a totally different thing. And this is where, um, this is where being your own coach, so to speak, can play a role in this mindset idea. It's imagine the complete opposite and online coaches aren't doing this so much, but it's somewhat similar where you've got a personal trainer and, um, like, this is how my mom trained. She literally just called me. My phone was just buzzing here. And my mom just like, she goes, she has a trainer where she goes, but she doesn't like to train. Like she is, she needs someone there to distract her. Okay. So she doesn't want to know what's coming. She wants to do nothing, but just be told what to do and move from thing to thing. And she's just, my mom's, you know, she's almost 80. So she's not trying to, you know, to put on maximal muscle mass, what have you. But imagine if you're in the gym and, um, you know, other than like being with someone who's, you know, a, a fellow bodybuilder and they're guiding you through and they kind of, even when I would train with John Meadows or sometimes we were filming or I went out, went out to train with John, we're doing John's training program. He'd always say, this is what we're going to do. This is what I'm thinking we're going to do, but I might change my mind here and there. And that was just based on how things went, but we, we thought it all through. Take the ex- other example. Someone comes in and they're like, okay, they get going. Oh shit. I forgot my logbook. So they go over here. It's like, okay, what are we doing? we're going to start with an incline press. Okay. Um, I don't know. Like what, what do you think? I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to do 235 because I did 225 for 10 last time. I'm getting 11 with 235 this time. I feel good. It's going to happen. It's like, what are you going to do? Oh, hold on. Let me look at my logbook. I don't know. What do you think? Like those two mindsets are just worlds apart. Mm-hmm. One is this is going to happen. I've already seen it in my mind's eye. I'm going to make it happen. And, you know, I may have been like Dorian Yates was renowned for this. I think thinking about his workouts, mm. you know, Dusty Hanshaw is someone who comes to mind and like, I, yeah, I, you know, when the big leg day's coming, it's like, okay, squats are coming around, you know, here we go. I got three days out. Like I got a rest day before squats that day before you're thinking about it all the time. You squat down to pick up something off the floor and you're like, my legs feel good, you know, or like, okay, they're going to hurt. They're going to hurt two days from now. <laughs> so all that anticipation, it's part of bringing, bringing that process into literally your, your being. Um, and then it, then it becomes, I mean, there's more stress there too. There's some anxiety and those sorts of things. So you got to kind of deal with that, but that's sort of the price that you pay. If you, I think to some degree, if you want, if you don't have phenomenal genetics where you can just walk in the gym and see an improvement every time. Um, one thing I talked about too, not long ago, and it relates to genetics. You look at most pros um, many of them train with progressive overload. Some of them do like, um, like James Hollingshead, I think does. And, um, Luke Sando used to like, of course, Jordan Peters does, um, or has, you know, I think he's taking a step back from the, he's still progressively overload. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's yeah. just an incredible athlete. <laughs> yeah. He's amazing. Right. So, um, but you know, a lot of those guys, even if they take that mindset, they know they have main lists that they want to improve on but there are a lot of really good pros who just do sort of a pro split and they're not log booking their stuff and they're not trying to micro load like Jordan does those sorts of things because they have genetics that allow them to just go in the gym and know they're going to get after it. This isn't to say they don't train hard. There's a lot of guys who, who train really hard, but you don't always see the log book being a key feature and someone who really needs to needs to drive the, the growth process is going to have to be a little more particular. So they're going to have to do that visualization. You know, and I think, you know, it's at least one important tool that can help them in that regard. Yeah, that's so. that's incredibly valuable. And it's, it's stuff that I've literally talked about with clients, like 
a lot as of late. I think it's been like a hot topic in the last few weeks or months. And I've like done like Instagram content about it. But like, yeah, like realizing the cards that you're dealt and playing them and saying, okay, just because these pros didn't have the logbook, I need to be more meticulous. I need to know exactly what I'm doing. I need to go in with this totalitarian approach for each and every step, as opposed to like right. training off intuition. You know, I just, I just kind of, this is a little facetious, but just popped in my head. People will sometimes say, well, Ronnie Coleman didn't do that. Yeah. And the, and the response to that is, okay, go train like Ronnie. <laughs> Let's see how long you last. Yeah. Because I remember when, when Ronnie first won his Olympia, like, you know, what his first one way back when a lot of the pros, I think I remember King Kamali saying this as one person, it's like, so we're like, well, how did he do that? Like what happened? Like so everyone wanted to try to recreate that. Like Ronnie figures something out. So people started trying to train like Ronnie. Nobody could do it. <laughs> no one could. They just couldn't hang. And of course, Ronnie sort of paid a price. I think mm. I, I suspect some of his injuries may have been, there may have been some surgical errors there that, that happened along the way. I don't know. Yeah, um, but he definitely, you know, put his body through a lot. But the fact that he could withstand that and become what he was, especially at his best, was was something specific to him. So you can't do, and that's the main thrust of this of this talk that I do is like if you're looking for the uh, someone who whose information, whose path you can follow on the route that you're going to have to take, find someone who has to take a route like has had to take a route like that matches yours. Mm-hmm. So someone with that you presume is genetics like yours who may have over the years, like put two, three pounds on their stage weight each year and kept on moving forward and forward, as opposed to someone like, like Phil Heath, I've, I've got the first slide in that presentation. I took the 2016 Mr. Olympia and I calculated as best I could when they won their first, when they did their first show and when they won their pro card. And if you take Sean Roden's value out and, um, Josh Nalarkowitz values out. He had, they both had some pauses. It was about two and a half years. Open pro bodybuilding. This isn't bikini, something like that. That's yeah. first show to pro card. And the top four, if I got it right, I can't, the order may not, may not be right. The top four were Phil Heath, Sean Roden, Dexter Jackson, and um, Big Rami. Mm. So those guys compete. They're a pro two and a half years later on average. That uh, is not that is a normal not a normal trajectory. No, and also to emphasize that trajectory, if you had scale weight readings of those guys in that two and a half years, they probably slapped on forty to sixty pounds easily. Yeah, we we know Dexter Jackson, and he first competed, you know, like as a as a welterweight, I believe, really light. And you know, Phil Phil Heath, you've seen the pictures of him as a basketball player. Very first show, Mr. Colorado, he won his class. He got beaten by one guy in the overall who was already a top 10 national competitor seasoned competitor in the U S the next year he won the overall, then he won the junior nationals, then he won the USA's, then he won his first two pro shows. <laughs> That's not normal. So you can't do what Phil does. You just can't. He's, he's, he's got, he's, he's traveling the road with a, on a different type of vehicle than most of us are. So if you're on a bicycle, look for someone riding a bike and say, Hey, which way should I go? Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Um, on that as well, like with the topic of genetics, I heard you discuss this on a podcast. I forget which one, but like that gap is going to be there whether you're in the natural or the assisted route. So yeah, like right. the best natural athletes will also turn out to be like the best assisted athletes, like because the genetic prevails. It's very rare that you'll have someone who's a non-responder as a natural go assisted and make a shit ton of progress. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
you've the same mechanisms of muscle growth are involved. So there's, I mean, there's so many things that are related to the genetics. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I, there's probably, if you take two individuals who as naturals, let's say they have the same genetic pr- propensity, gene, same genetic potential. It may be that one, um, like for instance, his antigen receptors um, are a little more sensitive to antigen and he has the, the right form of the, of the phosphodiesterase that, that cleaves esterified fatty acids from sterified steroids like testosterone, and theta, what have you. And maybe his serum hormone binding globulin isoform is a little bit different. So he has more free testosterone, more free antigens. There are some things that, that do determine um, sensitivity to antigens and how you, the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics of antigens that could make a difference. Um, we don't know a whole lot about, about the, the non-classical, non-genomic antigen receptor. There's one, there's an antigen receptor that is the main one that we've kind of known about for years. And there's antigen receptor or maybe receptors on the, on the cell surface. So there's possibility that take those two guys and put them on the same cycle that one could progress more so than the other. Mm-hmm. But I have no idea like how, how much variability you might see there because we're still talking about the things that turn on muscle growth. You still got, you know, training is still involved. You can get some muscle growth from just steroids. You know that from, from the, the classic Bosin study. Yeah. So we, you know, we have that information, but um, yeah, for the most part, and we, we got people like, I don't say that I know anyone, what people did or not, but the like Kai Green, um, you know, is an example. And, and Ronnie Coleman, tremendous. Ronnie was probably natural when he got his pro card. And Kai Green, you know, probably was Jose Raymond who got his pro card for years, you know, like as a welterweight, middleweight. So he's like, you know, 165, 170 something pounds. And then, then he was 210 as a pro. So something, you know, added on 40, 50 in Ronnie's case, like 70 pounds. That probably was the antigen. So those are some people, but there may be some guys, I don't know who, who were good amateurs who didn't become, you know, as good a pros necessarily, but for the most part, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Like you're going to see huge correlation, so mm. to speak, if you could statistically analyze that between how much you get as a natural, how much you get afterwards, it's going to make a difference. Mm. But yeah, I, the interesting thing, the interesting way to kind of phrase this is, you know, if you, if you, if you get, let's say you increase muscle mass by 20% or let's say 40%, like over the course of a, of a full, um, career, a lot of people can double their muscle mass. So, you know, from like how much they start with to maybe their maximal off season. So like 160 pounds to 260 pounds, you know, and that's, if you look at the amount of muscle masses, there's roughly a doubling. So let's say, you know, you add 20% to your muscle mass as an amateur natural or mm-hmm. just as a natural. And then, you know, you, if you look at someone else who adds 50% to their muscle mass as a natural. My guess is that the person who adds those, adds the drugs in who got 50% as a natural is going to get a much larger percentage later on than the other guy who didn't grow all that well as a natural. Yeah. It's going to be very, very highly correlated. I would the cream, the cream always was the top. Yeah. Yeah. Simple as. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting. I, I would say, I would be surprised that if you, if you took the best natural bodybuilders, Mm-hmm. Um, who spent their time getting there as naturals, like Jose did, for instance, like, and then, and then added PEDs to the mix, they're going to probably 
grow better on average than someone who maybe has equivalent genetics physiologically, not thinking about the psychological phenomenon, the psychological aspects are there. Cause those, those people have already done all that training. They've already shown a love for the sport. They're not just going into it and like, Oh, you just add the drugs and they get tons of gains. That happens in some cases. I know a guy like I've talked about before, he's now passed on, but he added 50 pounds of muscle in his 50 pounds of body weight in his first six months of training. And then he got on gear and he added another 50 pounds in the next six months. So he got a hundred pounds in the first year. That's ridiculous. And he loved to train. He was just, he was just an absolute animal. Same was Justin Rice. I mentioned him not long ago on a, on a podcast. He's from New Zealand. Um, but so, but I think the guys who, who get there, who love the sport who are natural, those are the ones who are going to make the best use of the gear. And I think maybe what you're getting at, I don't know, is that, you know, someone's labored at it for three or four years and they haven't like risen to the, the, the risen to the top. They're not the cream, so to speak. Gear's not going to be the answer for those guys. They've already got their answer. Yeah. I, I just, I don't want people taking this genetic stuff and then using it to justify and trying to out drug their genetics. Cause it's not yeah. going to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Conversation. You, You've got a really, really, really good litmus test of your genetics just in how you respond as a natty, you know, three or four years. Um, so, yeah, this it's I mean, although the, the, and it's again, it's a misattribution. It's kind of a logical fallacy that it's like all the all the biggest pros take lots of gear. It's like, yeah, yeah. But again, they've got genetics that made them. There's also lots of amateurs who take lots of gear who don't look like the best pros. So. You could just as much say, you know, the, the, if we look at the m- highest number of people who take lots of gear, it's going to be the amateurs, probably. Um, if we looked at it mathematically, it's like, so if I take lots of gear, I'm going to look like most of those guys, which is probably more true than thinking you're going to look like most of the best pros. So, yeah, we just, we just, we have, um, we have a confirmation bias, you know, we want to, we want to see what we want to see. So we try to confirm it any way possible mm-hmm. in our own mind. Alex, you want to say something? I was going to say, do you, do you think it's important then for people to realize their natural potential before they make the decision to jump on gear? Oh, that's a good question. I think, yeah, I, I would say generally, absolutely yes. Mm-hmm. Um, just because the thing that especially <laughs> kind of depends on the age, like you can talk about sort of brain development. Um, if you've got a... Um, you know, if you consider the prefrontal, the frontal cortex, where we do sort of our executive thinking, it's not really done with um, its full development until you're like 25 or so, roughly mid 20s. So <laughs> you, you see, like, really seriously, so you see this. This isn't like this is just a general thing. The people who start early and they turn out just fine. But you see this in terms of driving behavior, like the insurance companies. You know, they know that once you get past like 23, 24, people start to drive much more conservatively. And it may be very well related to, you know, your frontal cortex development. You're able to, to in, inhibit yourself from like wanting to like just jam on the accelerator and, and, or run a red light, you know, when it's, when it's kind of pink, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. actually red, those sorts of things. So just thinking of it, that in terms of when you can actually make those kinds of decisions, that makes sense in terms of your life course. Like by that time, you know, a lot of people are already married. They've kind of, maybe they've already had their kids and they settle into that. Like, does that then make sense given that period of their, of their life to do that? Um, and of course, from a training perspective, you've learned how to train, you learn how to diet, 
Um, and you've gotten to the point where you can make that decision, I think, better. And the thing that people don't necessarily consider if they start really young is, well, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Like, what am I going to do after I'm done? You know, when I, when I come off and I stop competing, what have you, am I going to, what am I going to fall back to? And that's when, oh gosh, you know, you see that so often. I haven't, haven't been to a class reunion for a while, but you know, you go back like, cause I'm an old guy, man, I will be 52 this year. And you go back to the class reunion and I talk to some other friends that who still work out. And it's like, like everyone just, they, they did what the average American does. They've got the creeping obesity phenomenon going on and they gain about a pound of weight every year after the age of 25 or 30 and everyone's fat. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you got on and your gains were made, so to speak, with the help of drugs, which makes everything easier and, and it make, makes sense. You've gotten, you're looking really good and you're not eating well and maybe you're going out partying a lot. You're not doing the behaviors that would support having a good physique because the drugs are sort of taking up the slack for you. You haven't developed those habits. So when you come off, you got nothing to support your gains. And that can be really bad for someone's psyche too. Mm-hmm. That can really um, throw them for a loop. Yeah. So you develop those habits by training for a few years and say, who do I like the training thing first and foremost? So I, do I dig this? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the thing that can happen too is like, make sure you don't, maybe you really don't even like training. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of, but you think I just want to get more out of this. So you do the drugs and then eventually it's like, okay, shit. Now I screwed up my, my HPTA, you know, my axis is all messed up. And I, and like, I did it for like three years and like, shit, I shouldn't have done that. I was at body power years ago. Um, this is a kind of extreme example, but I have a bodybuilding 101, bodybuilding pharmacology 101 talk that I put together. And um, I did the talk and it's just kind of basic stuff, but it's stuff a lot of people don't know. Cause there's at that time, especially there's no one out there kind of teaching that stuff. Now we've got some good resources, better resources for sure. Um, and afterwards, two brothers, young brothers came up to me. They're like 20 and 19. And the one had, I can't remember which one, the older, the younger, but the one had decided like a year and a half before that to start taking pro hormones. And he got a hold of some gear and he didn't know what he was doing. And when he tried to come off, he completely shut himself down. He was pretty screwed. He lost his sex drive. He lost his girlfriend. Like I think he may have dropped out of school. And the other brother was, didn't do that but he hung in there with his brother and he like supported him. And they, so they kind of told me this whole story and they were really happy that I explained some things that they weren't really clear about as to what happens. Like, no wonder this shit happened. So they had some light bulbs going off, but they're like, God, I wish I would have heard that earlier because I wouldn't have done what I did. You know, I would, if I'd known what I was getting myself into, I wouldn't have done it. So, I mean, I get, I don't know what I did. I talked about something pharmacologically related in the last month or so, but I've been getting inundated on Instagram with drug questions, like all mm-hmm. sorts of things. A lot of them are, are, are gear related and they're questions, simply questions without any context. Like, can I take, can I take these three things at once? And it's like, no, you take those last two and you're going to explode. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> so they've done like no research they don't like this the idea of stacking which has been around since the you know since since you know man invented the wheel (laughs) stacking is like a concept of you know this would have some synergy what have you no idea of you know picking from different classifications of steroids or anything like that just nothing no background research but they're on the verge of using Mm. so and this is not for lack of information Mm. this is because there's so much information out there maybe it's too much 
yeah. you go and Google these things. It's like, who, who do I trust? And that's a hard thing too, but you have to be able to willing to wade through those things. And now, unfortunately, like back when I, I was, you know, I was kind of lucky back when I was starting these things, you didn't just ask anybody drug questions, you know, like you went and everyone was anonymous on the, on the, the discussion boards right. and you learned and you, and you, you know, I was reading the studies, of course, early on, cause I was in graduate school and trying to decipher this stuff as much as I possibly could. Um, so I had a good understanding of that because it was very important, privy information. And then we have, you know, Boston Lloyd, rest in peace, came out. He's sort of the big, first big person that just say, look at all the crazy stuff I'm doing, all the megadoses I'm using and the abscesses I'm getting, et cetera, et cetera. And it's changed. It's turned into an entirely different situation where everyone just talks openly about what they're doing. And that's a really good thing, to be honest, I think. Um, but there, that tends to, I think, loosen up some people's perspective on what they're actually potentially doing. Mm. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, here's one way to think about it. I don't know if I phrased it this way before, but um, although some people might argue against this sort of novel thought that there are some hormonal differences that differentiate the two sexes. We've got male and female, and there's also intersex, of course, but testosterone and androgen production is one thing that makes a tremendous difference. Boys and girls diverge at puberty tremendously in terms of their physical characteristics, beards. All three of us have a beard. That's typical male, male thing. That's something that happened or that ability happened with, with, uh, with, with androgens, with testosterone. So that's the system that you're playing around with, that you can shut down if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not paying attention and you don't have any, any um, escape shoot, so to speak, with an HPT, with some sort of a recovery protocol, mm-hmm. um, post a PCT re- protocol of some sort. From a woman's perspective, and I've mentioned this before, Men are producing on average seven to 10 milligrams of testosterone a week. So that's 50, you know, to 70 milligrams of testosterone. So let's say it's 70. That's, that's about, that's 10 a day. That's the equivalent of 10 milligrams a day. Anivar at 10 milligrams a day is pretty close to that in terms of what we're doing in terms of, of androgens. Mm-hmm. So women who let's say spend, I don't know, eight weeks on cycle and they do that over the course of two years on and off half the time, they spent one year at a man's level of androgen production. That slowly changes things. That's, that's when the, all the secondary sexual characteristics can slowly creep in. The voice changes, lots of them come back. So mm-hmm. just relativizing things to know, hey, like I'm messing with this, the hormone system that makes me feel like a guy, gives me sex drive. It's what made me into a man in large part. Obviously, the, the, the chromosomes are there, but those hormonal changes turn on the underlying sexual differences that are genetic in large part. I'm messing with the primary system. You know, it's like, I'm going to go just throw some turbo on my, on my Honda Celica. It's like, do you know how engines work? No, man, I got this thing at Walmart. I'm just going to throw it in there. And like, next thing you know, you blow out your system. Hmm. And it wasn't meant for Honda Celicas. Your genetics are a Honda Celica. Like, why are you throwing it in there? You're not going to beat anyone in any road race. You're not yeah. going to treat it. You're not going to be at a Lambo. The guys you're trying to look like or be like and, and be as fast as those are Lamborghinis. Those are the best of the best. Mm. And then, you know, women, the other, I'll come up with some of the analogy probably down the road, but it's the same sort of thing. It's like you're running, you're running automobile cycles on a uh, tires on a motorcycle or a bicycle. Right. Yeah. So eventually you're, you're doing things that are going to make your bicycle more like an automobile. And if, unless you're okay with that, which is totally fine. Absolutely. No problem. I think it's just not knowing what you're getting yourself into and the openness in which we talk and the open with which like the first thing I tell people when I get these messages and 
there's probably a hundred people out there who might hear this, who could attest is the first thing I says, Hey, don't ask for drug advice on Instagram. <laughs> Just don't do it, man. Cause especially me or anyone else, because you don't know what you're going to get. Like, you know, go and inform yourself, you know, and like you need context for all these questions and people are so open. It's like, you know, Hey, you know, should I, should I put this, which salad dressing is going to be best, you know, for getting essential fatty acids. It's like, ah, you know, use this one, or this is a better fat source than that one. Okay. That's a simple question. They treat it almost something as laissez-faire as that. And I think that is, that can be an issue um, because it's complicated. And if you don't have a biological background in terms of education, like, oh shit. But I think everyone owes it to themselves to know, because you got one body, you know, at least this point in, in, uh, in science, you know, we're not doing brain transfers yet. You got one shot at this and you can do, there's so many, um, instances and this is happening. Now I've got a friend who's, whose wife is a wellness uh, pro and she finally got her pro card. She's so happy. So she competed many, many times and, uh, and she was got second over and over and over again. The thing that they've noticed is many of these women, and they knew what they were doing. Many of them, I'm not pointing out anyone specifically. I don't know the, the names anyway. Wouldn't have wouldn't have remembered them. But they went all out. This is wellness. It's you know supposed to be a wellness. Um, they named that I think for a reason. But these are women who are used as managing, which is totally fine. But they got there and they got their pro card, and then they vanish, or they maintain Instagram profiles and they don't look anything like they did on stage. They don't have anything to fall back on. And I think, I think that is, is a manifestation probably in some of those cases, can't say for all of them of kind of what I'm talking about. It's like, ah, we'll just start training and we'll throw some, we'll throw some Primo in there, throw some Anavar in there and, you know, you'll get to where you're going lickety split, but you've got no basis to fall back on when it's done. And God, I can't even imagine, you know, being maybe even a woman where, you know, beauties has a higher priority than, than for men in Western society, where you look phenomenal. You got all these great pictures and you were just absolutely incredible. And now you're like, I got some side effects and I don't, and I don't want to get back on that stuff, but I don't know quite how to get there. Mm. Don't have the tools anymore. And I don't look nearly like I did. That's going to be a huge blow to self-esteem. Just like any guy, the first time you compete and you look awesome and everyone's like, fuck, you know, I want to stay this way forever. <laughs> you can't, it just doesn't work that way. This is even, I think, probably a worse situation where their women may end up being, I don't even, maybe they look different than they did before, not as good as they once looked. And so that's my diatribe on, on, you know, digging in and loving the endeavor, the sport before the drugs come into play. Um, so you got something to fall back on, you know, and you take care, better care of yourself. Because believe it or not, pharmacodynamics and steroids are more complex than salad dressings. Yes. There you go. <laughs> I could have just said that. It would have been fine. Yeah. That would have across. No, I think we're all expecting the um the tangential conversations and the rabbit holes we could have uh, if anyone listens to you on any other podcasts. But right. that's the beauty of it. They're the they're the most valuable ones. Um but for this episode, I think we're gonna wrap it up because we like to keep these a little bit sweet. Um but for people who are hopefully eager to hear more from you um, and to delve into your own content, where are you looking for you? Yeah. yeah, Instagram. I'm doing Instagram, unfortunately. Or they can just go to Dr. Scott Stevenson, drscottstevenson.com. But Instagram, people can find me there. Just don't. I want to even, I'm not going to do this. So I'll probably never do it. Unless I, I, sometimes I do block some people. I get some weird ones. You know, everyone kind of gets some weird <laughs> stuff. 
don't send me drug questions because I'll just, I'll just, um, if someone here's the, here, I'll say it this way. You give me a chance to kind of advertise what I want. Um, I will answer, and this is, of course, I do consultation. So I advertise for myself. I would love to do consultations with people who've dove in and they've literally learned as much as they feel like they can. They can't get any, they can't, they can't figure some things out because they don't have the formal education and they have some very specific questions that they can't find answers to or, or the answers don't satisfy them. That's what I, that's what I, that's what I'm here to do as much as I can mm. lend my expertise to people who've kind of run up against their, their limits in a certain sense. Mm. Um, so theoretical questions or like, for instance, the three drug question, you know, someone might, might phrase that as, um, are there, are there any inconsistencies? Like not even know how to phrase this in terms of pharma or in terms of, of uh, physiological or pharmacological babble. Um, is there anything Am I, am I doing myself a disservice in combining three substances with the same total dosage? Should I start have used one at a time? Any reason not to go start off with three in a first cycle that you can think of? I'm concerned, you know, about these particular substances, something like that, or not even say it for your cycle, just, just speaking about these three things from a theoretical standpoint. That's what I love to hear. But when, when someone says, I'm going to take these three things in my cycle, <laughs> Then I say, oh, you're asking me for a prescriptive device as to what drugs you should use. You know, if you say, are there any unwanted interactions with these three drugs, something along those lines, we don't personalize it. That's what I'm, that's what I'm happy to answer. Yeah. Um, Come with contextual questions. Yeah. Read the books first, purchase, be your own bodybuilding coach and um, delve into fortitude training. I've ran it for a few months. It was fucking fantastic. Oh, it, good. Like it will catch up with you. <laughs> if you yeah. do, you got to do it. You got to do the intensive yeah. cruise whenever you feel like you need it. Yeah. But um, that's really, it's really, you're an outstanding outlet of information. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for coming on. Um, My pleasure. Peace out guys. Thanks for listening.